want to ask you a question right off the bat this morning. Have you ever wondered if God could use such a person as yourself, as dysfunctional as you feel and as weak as you feel? Do you, do you feel like you're a failure? Do you tend to, well, you feel like you tend to wreck things? Do you feel like a lost cause? Or that your reality is that you falter just way too much to be used by God? The people of Israel who are sitting at the edge of the promised land while Moses is writing to them here to, to um, give them faith, to encourage them along the way, they certainly were wondering if they have what they need to, to actually do what God's called them to do. That is to go into the promised land where there are enemies galore. They, they've had so many spiritual hiccups along the way um, that they've been on that they're honest with themselves and they realize that they don't have what they need in themselves. And, and what it's doing is causing doubt, causing a lack of faith, causing a, uh, because their, their hope is kind of in themselves, but they, they're being directed differently, as we'll see this morning. Their faith is weak. They tend to make some really poor choices, and it's resulting in some significant doubt. Does that sound familiar to you at all, just in our own lives? Moses continues on, not by pointing to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and saying, these guys, these guys, we need to be like these guys. These guys are icons of righteousness. They're icons of like, what, what Moses is telling the people is that, look, from, from the beginning, your hope is in God. From the very beginning, your hope is in God. Not, not in Abraham being exceptional or Isaac being exceptional or Jacob being exceptional, but by God being absolutely exceptional. The reality is that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were just as dysfunctional and needy as they were hundreds of years later and just as you and I are today. Moses speaks specifically over and over again, and we've seen this repeatedly. As a matter of fact, this sermon feels like a repeat um, because the, 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 what, what Moses is teaching, what God is teaching, is the same thing over and over and over again to drive the people of Israel to trust and believe in God. That God was with them. God is leading them. God is guiding them. God is fulfilling His plan. God will fulfill His plan. His covenant. He is the faithful one. He's the mighty one. He's the warrior king. He's their God. He would accomplish in them and through them what He requires to accomplish His plan. He will see it done, no matter the situation. The same was true for them as they considered the task in front of them as they were tasked to enter the promised land. The same is true for you and I today as we sit in our own weakness and our own doubt, our own struggles along the path that God has us on today. Our struggles are many, aren't they? Our, last week we talked about the famines, the, the famines that we experience in life, whether it's spiritual, physical, emotional, psychological, whatever kind of famines we experience, there's this weakness and doubt and we wonder, are we going to wreck God's plan somehow? God surely, surely cannot use someone like me. But he always uses people like you and people like me. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When we realize 
in particular that, that in God that we have and th through God's work in us that, um, that in our weakness he shows himself to be the strong one that when we, when we as we get that we'll be get, trying to get that like for the rest of our lives trying to understand that and grapple with it but when we get that as we're getting it it frees us to be at rest which is the main point that I want to bring oursel our, our, ourselves to today and that is this we are called really to find rest amid our own dysfunctional lives in the absolute assurance of God's faithfulness to accomplish His glorious purposes in us and through us. This, this is the reality. We can, we can find rest. I, so I ask you this morning, are you at rest knowing this? Or do you feel uptight about your dysfunction? We'll talk more about dysfunctional as we go along. We're going to look at the dysfunction of Isaac, the dysfunction of Rebecca, and the dysfunction of the boys, and uh, we'll hopefully come along some application along the way. So let's look at the dysfunction of Isaac first. In the narrative, it's evident that both Rebecca and Jacob acted deceitfully, uh, and we'll discuss their shameful deception in just a moment. But for now, I want to consider that while Isaac was ultimately the one who was deceived, he seems as though he bears much of the responsibility for what's transpiring here. Isaac seemed to have had some sort of passive and non-confrontational temperament, at least at this point in his life, and certainly people who hope in God should be marked by what Paul states in Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, when he says this, Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. The, the manifestation of these qualities in a person uh, can be evidence of uh, the work of the Spirit in someone, growing godliness. But it's often assumed that being like that, compassionate, kind, humble, meek, and patient, requires us to be passive and to avoid confrontation. But it's not the case. Although Jesus was perfectly compassionate, he was, he was kind and humble and perfectly so, meek and patient, he certainly was not passive. He certainly was not non-confrontational. It's important not to confuse the two things. A godly person, regardless of gender, should possess these humble and meek qualities, but also have the courage to do what is right and to confront that which is wrong when necessary, but to do so in gentleness and humility. It's easy to be harsh. It's easy to be judgmental, especially from the generally safe confines of social media, which only requires giving in to our sinful passions. It's also easy to be passive, which only requires giving in to our desire for personal comfort. But it's difficult to be both humble, meek, and mild, while also being bold, courageous, and appropriately confrontational, as Jesus was. Both of these things require self-control and involve the denial of self. Both of these things require God to be at work in us in these ways. For Isaac, it seems that we see someone who had grown to be perhaps meek and mild, but it was accompanied by a propensity towards passivity and non-confrontational negligence that also seemed to indicate a kind of self-reliance that he had growing in him. 
and a departure from the understanding of the will and purposes of God in his life. Consider three observations. Think about Esau. Esau marrying some Hittite women at the beginning in particular made life miserable for Isaac and Rebekah. And unlike Father Abraham, his father Abraham, who insisted finding a suitable wife for Isaac from his own clan, Isaac neglected to follow this pattern for his sons, at least at the front end of the story. We'll notice the difference at the tail end of the story, but, but for now, this is, this is what we're seeing. Isaac seemed less concerned about maintaining purity within the covenant family at this point in his in this story. Perhaps there's more to the story. I'm sure there is, but it's at least noticeable at the end of chapter 26 that, that, huh, he doesn't do with Esau what Abraham did for Isaac in protecting the covenant and not marrying Hittite women. Second observation is that it seems that Isaac, like Esau, was driven by his appetites and his love for pleasure. We spoke about that a little bit last week particularly for the food that Esau hunted and prepared for him. It's important for us to connect those uh, two stories, Isaac and uh, Isaac's love for food and Esau's love for food that we saw in the birthright story. Both Isaac and Esau seem to be more concerned with their personal comfort than with their faithfulness before God and trust in his word and, and his provision. The third observation is that Isaac was getting old and his health was deteriorating. And not knowing that he was... Uh, or when he would pass away in particular, he decided to follow the tradition of pronouncing blessings on his descendants. Especially important for the family of Isaac, given the promises of God that we've walked through over these last number of weeks that God had given to them. There's something unusual, though, about the way Isaac went about it. Instead of calling all of his sons together, both sons in particular, he only calls Esau. In contrast with Jacob which will come to a number of weeks from now, when he blesses his children, he calls them all together, and he's addressing each one um, along the way. There's something strange about Isaac's behavior from the very beginning, which just didn't seem right. It seems that, to me anyway, that Rebecca and Jacob weren't the only ones who were acting in some sort of deception in this story. Isaac's plan becomes clear when we think about the prophecy of God that Rebekah received years prior. The Lord had said this, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. Pretty clear to us, looking back, but for Isaac, it evidently was something that he wasn't sure about or had forgotten it's difficult to know what he was thinking, but when we consider the whole situation, it's clear that Isaac, in this moment, in this like kind of normal story, it seems, it seems that he is going against God's revealed word and God's revealed plan by intending to bless Esau as if he were the one blessed by the Lord, no matter what God had said to Rebekah. Consider Isaac's blessing, which he prepared for Esau but he ended up pronouncing on Jacob. Listen to the words and listen to them. They were meant for Esau, but he gave them to Jacob providentially. May God give you 
of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let peoples serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you and cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. Now Jacob receives that, but that's meant for Esau according to Isaac. Two important things. One, one is... This blessing was based on the promise that God had made to Abraham a number of years ago. God's path, God's plan. Same language used in this as, as it has been throughout all of our stories. Second, in his blessing, Isaac addresses the question of who's going to rule over whom. Even though Rebekah had heard God say specifically, the one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger, Isaac yet doesn't believe it, or forgets it. It's difficult to understand what exactly was going on in Isaac's mind and heart that would lead him to take this course of action. Was, was Esau his favorite son? So that just kind of turned the tide against God's authoritative plan. Ah, Esau. Esau's my man. Esau's my boy. Did he distrust Rebecca's testimony concerning the word of God delivered to her while the twins were in her womb? Or did Isaac simply lack the courage to do what was countercultural in obedience to the word of God? Because it certainly would be countercultural. Blessing Jacob as the one with the birthright and the one to receive the promises would have required great courage and faith for him in light of the traditions of those days. We, we may never know for sure but, but what, what Isaac's thinking, but what is clear is that Isaac was out of line with what God had revealed, and his cunning indicates that he knew it. Now, let's consider together for a moment. God's Word speaks of two different kinds of sins. We've talked about this on Wednesday nights, the sins of commission and sins of omission. A sin of commission is breaking God's law by doing something that's prohibited in God's word. Uh, uh, on the other hand, a sin of omission is failing to do something that God requires us to do. For instance, telling a, telling a lie is a sin of commission, while not speaking truth when you should speak truth is a sin of omission. Both types of sin can lead us away from the path of righteousness. When we think of sin, we often think of actions that we've committed. So we feel guilty about something that we did. Something that we did, something we did, whatever. And it's, of course, important to repent of those things and strive to avoid doing them, to put those things to death, to put on Christ. But we should also be aware that for, arguably more often, we, we're involved with sins of omission. Things we should do, but don't. We're neglecting things. We're, it's easy to be passive. A few examples. Uh, we know that disrespecting parents is a sin. It's clear. Not honoring them, it's a sin. Or, or speaking in such a way as that it's, a, it's, a, it's an action. So like angrily rejecting your parents and disrespecting them, it's a, it's a sin. Now, Sin of commission. Sin of omission would be honoring. You just don't honor your parents. You live with them fine, but you're not honoring them. You're not respecting them. Not giving them the grace that they deserve. 
We know that treating our wives or our husbands or our kids or our brothers and sisters in the church or even our enemies with anger and impatience, demeaning words or actions is a sin, but how about passively neglecting to love them? And to love them as Paul speaks of in 1 Corinthians 13 when he says this, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own ways. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. That's, that's love. That's love. What if we just don't do that? We're nice enough, but we don't love in that way. It may not be purposeful that we live this way, but that's the issue. L- love is purposeful. Biblical love is purposeful, and we see that most clearly God demonstrating his love for us in that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. Very purposeful. Anything less than, than what Paul speaks of in 1 Corinthians 13 yeah, seems, seems to be sin. So to neglect to love is failing to do that which God requires. Do you, do you see? Hating our neighbors and treating them disrespectfully is, is easily seen as sinful. But how about passively neglecting your neighbor when God's called you to love your neighbor as yourself? To live in this passive neglect is to fail to do which, that which God requires, so it's a, so it's a sin. And, and this was Isaac's flaw. He seemed to be passive and neglectful. Whether ancient Israel or us today, we're called to learn from his error, strive to please the Lord by doing what is required of us, and yet we will fail, and we will fail, and we will fail. doesn't mean there's not victory along the way. We'll get to our hope in, in a moment. The issue is that we're, we're not just dysfunctional. We're, we're sinners. The Westminster Catechism, question 14, asks the question, what is sin? And the answer is this. Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Sins of commission, sins of omission, sins of commission. When we approach the Lord in prayer, it's important to ask Him to reveal the areas in which we are failing Him, falling short of His law. We should humbly, one of my favorite passages is Psalm 139, and at the end of that psalm, it's like, see if there be any wicked way in me. Lord, would you, would you help me to know? If I'm blind to something, help me to know. So humbly ask the Lord if there's anything there. Through His Word and the promptings of the Spirit, the Lord may reveal areas where we need to confess and repent. Most likely, there are areas where we need to confess and repent and believe the gospel and then walk in obedience by the power of the Spirit. He may remind us to forgive others who have sinned against us or lovingly exhort a brother or sister who is living in sin to be more generous maybe in our giving or to be more diligent in the work of maturing and multiplying disciples who enjoy, declare, and display the good news of Jesus Christ for the joy of all peoples, being purposeful in our life. Any of those kind of things. Well, the issue really at hand, partially anyway, is that Isaac is dysfunctional. Isaac's not walking in faith at this point. The dysfunction of Rebecca. Rebecca's actions towards her husband when she tried to secure the blessing for Jacob were not commendable. Not at all. It may feel right, may feel like correction that needed to happen. It might seem that the ends justify the means, but they're not commendable the way she 
walks in this. Her intentions may have been noble in some ways. Her approach was deceitful nonetheless and manipulative. Instead of treating her husband with respect and dignity, she resorted to dishonorable and deceptive tactics. Rebecca's actions not only hurt her husband, but also undermined the family's trust and unity. A better approach for her would have been to trust in God's plan and let the blessing come in due course without resorting to deceptive means. Rebecca had uh, good intentions in wanting Jacob to receive Isaac's blessing. It was clear to her that Isaac was making a mistake by giving the blessing to Esau instead. So she knew what God had said to her, and she sees the mistake that's happening, and she's trying to correct it. And as noble as that might be, it's, Rebecca's plan was misguided. She, too, should have trusted in the Lord. You see how her stepping in was this sense of, I got to do something to make God's plan work. Rather than humbly saying, okay, Lord, you said this was going to, you said this was the plan. Would you, would you direct? Would you lead? Would you make this happen? She got in there and was trying to make it happen. She just set aside her fears and respected her husband in obedience to God, knowing that God would be faithful to his promise, his specific promise in that case. However, instead of receiving a blessing through honesty and faith in God, she resorted to deception. She resorted to trickery for Jacob's benefit as the one that she favored. Rebecca's plan was undeniably dishonorable towards her husband Isaac, and as he had grown old, Isaac had become increasingly frail. With all of his senses greatly weakened, his eyesight was poor and he could barely see. His sense of touch was diminished, making it difficult for him to distinguish between different textures. And his hearing was weak and even his sense of taste had been affected at this point. And Rebecca knew all of this as his bride and decided to take advantage of it, take advantage of him. She substituted goat for venison, knowing that Isaac wouldn't be able to tell the difference. It's a, it's a sad picture as Rebecca took advantage of her husband's weakened state to fulfill her own desires. In the story, we see that Rebecca is, is pretty manipulative. Even after her deception was discovered and Esau became angry, Rebecca still managed to manipulate Isaac into sending Jacob away. And you hear it at the tail end of verse 46. She says, I loathe my life because of these Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? Rebecca refused to address the, the real issue, Esau's plan to kill Jacob, and instead manipulated Isaac to get what she wanted. I've had some experiences with manipulative people during my time in pastoral ministry. Uh, these people are, are difficult to minister to because they refuse to address the real issue at hand. And instead, they resort to exaggeration and half-truths and lying blame-shifting and deceit to get what they want. They lack honesty, they lack humility in the way that they approach things. Now, it may not be so among, among us. 
As brothers and sisters in Christ, may we learn to be honest and humble, avoiding any manipulation, whether passive or aggressive. Let's be clear that our ultimate goal in life isn't to be focused solely on achieving personal gains. Instead, we must prioritize glorifying God, following His plan, following His will, actively loving and caring for our neighbors with godly integrity, loving one another. Rebecca was afraid of losing her sons, Esau and Jacob. And in Genesis 27, verse 45, she spoke to Jacob, why should I lose both of you in one day? Ironically, she loses both of her sons, not due to death, but due to division. Her relationship with Esau was greatly damaged. Jacob had to be sent away to save his life. And this wasn't a short-term separation, rather one that lasted many, many years. The reality is sin can create chaos in our, in our lives and relationships, whether it's due to our actions or our failure to act in faith and belief in God. We don't know much about Isaac and Rebecca's relationship necessarily, but it seems that they've neglected the relationship a bit, and they've become distant from one another. They certainly love their children, but they, they may have focused so much on their children that they failed to nurture their own relationship. Now, it's not the point of the sermon at all, but it's an implication. If you're married, let me just encourage you to be purposeful with one another. Don't be passive and neglectful of your relationship and therefore rather dysfunctional. Be purposeful with each other, caring for one another, serving one another, and thereby pleasing the Lord as you reflect the beauty of the gospel. Be purposeful with each other. Much broader is our relationship as brothers and sisters in Christ, the family of God. There, there's a way that we can be passive and neglectful of one another, and there are ways we can be manipulative and deceitful. Either one is sinful. Either one is damaging. May, may we nurture our relationships in the family of God, caring for one another, loving one another, serving one another, speaking in truth to one another, graciously building one another up, protecting one another, bearing with one another, providing for one another, praying for one another, and so much more. Our, our relationship in the family of God is an eternal one. People who have been redeemed by the blood of God himself, there is no room for deception or passivity or neglect or gossip or slander, may we walk together in humility and honesty and mercy and grace, trusting the Lord together. Third point, the dysfunction of the boys. This is short. We won't spend much time here because there's not a lot in the text about this necessarily. We've seen uh, this in the past as well, but let's consider for a moment together. Esau has proven to be a man of his passions. Commentators observe that he appears too elated to receive his father's blessing instead of grieving his father's poor condition. He wants, he wants that blessing. In Genesis 30, 27, 34, we see how Esau reacts when he finds out his father had actually given his blessing to Jacob. Esau, Esau cries out bitterly and asks his father for a blessing too. But Isaac tells Esau that he's already given a blessing to Jacob and cannot give him another one. And instead he tells Esau that he's going to have to live by the sword and he's going to have to serve his brother, though one day he's going to be able to break free from his brother's yoke. It wouldn't happen for years. In verse 41, we learn that Esau harbored a deep hatred for 
his brother Jacob. Esau resented Jacob for receiving their father's blessing and declared that he would kill him after their father's death. The interesting thing is that, is that his response, Esau's response at one level seems understandable to us. And if you've read this story before, you're like, yeah. I mean, if my brother did that, I want to kill him too. And, and that's the issue. The hatred Esau harbored, we can feel in our own hearts. And there is nothing good or righteous about it. It's not only highly dysfunctional, it's entirely sinful. Last thought on Esau. And consider the last section of the text, 28 verses 6 through 9. We read that when Esau had seen what his father directed Jacob to do, Esau in his vindictive, disrespectful, and dishonoring heart chose to totally disregard his father. And once again, he added two more Canaanite women to his life and marriage just to spite his father. And then Jacob. Well, we've seen it weeks past that Jacob is a deceiver, and here we see it again. Rather than standing in integrity and truth, he obeyed his mother's scheme to deceive his father. He, even he expressed hesitation in verses 11 through 13, but his reluctance really was just self-preservation. It didn't have anything to do with God's plan. So what a mess. Isaac's dysfunctional, Rebecca's dysfunctional, Esau and Jacob dysfunctional, all sinners, all struggling, all wrestling, Maybe not wrestling so much as giving in. There was so much division in their relationships. And yet, despite of all this, Jacob was blessed by the Lord. In spite of the story that is a mess, the Lord blessed Jacob. The dysfunction did not thwart God's plans. And, and that's good news. In chapter 28, verse 1, Isaac blesses Jacob once again, and it seems that Isaac had kind of come to terms with God's plan as he acknowledges the prophecy given to Rebekah, which stated that the older son would serve the younger. Isaac passes on the promises that were made to Abraham, to Jacob, clearly demonstrating his acceptance of God's will. And here's what he says in verses 1 through 5. He said, and think about the difference. Jacob, don't take a wife from the Canaanite women. Go to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father. Take as your wife from there, one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. See the direction? It's like it's different care. No, no longer passive, but specific and caring and directive. And then he says this, God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. The, the writer of the book of Hebrews had a clear understanding at, at the end of the story when he highlighted the faith of Isaac. We might wonder about Isaac's faith, but in Hebrews eleven twenty, Isaac's faith isn't questioned. Rather, it's held up as an example to us, which might have you scratching your head. Well, how, how is it an example? Even though Isaac's blessings were initially misguided and directed, misdirected, he uttered them in faith, trusting that God will fulfill the promises made to Abraham in, even, even, in, even in his dysfunction, even in his sin. And in the end, Isaac did get it right. He sets the promise made to Abraham down upon Isaac, and God made sure that that was going to happen. 
The passage speaks about the absolute certainty of God's plans despite the difficulties we may face due to our sins of commission, sins of omission, our spiritual and relational dysfunctions in life and our multiple weaknesses. If you can identify with anything about Isaac, anything about Jacob, anything about Rebekah, what we can identify with is dysfunction and our sin and our weakness Also, the story reminds us that the Lord is the only God and that there is none like Him. And nothing can thwart His plans. He knows everything past, present, and future, declaring the end from the beginning. He states in Isaiah 46, I am, the God, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purposes. I will accomplish all my purposes, even if we lack faith, which, which we do. Even when we're faithless. Paul says in 2 Timothy 2, if we're faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. He is the faithful one. It doesn't mean that we can be lazy. Doesn't mean we can be complacent. The Spirit is a work in us, strengthening us to know the depths of the love of Christ and be filled with the fullness of God. He's called us to put sin to death and to walk in holiness without a doubt. Yet our hope is not in our ability to be righteous and to get it all right and to not be dysfunctional and to not be weak. And I need to be strong. I need to... Our hope is in the righteousness of Christ that's been given to us entirely by faith. We... we Sometimes, just can't help but be dysfunctional. But our hope is in Christ. Our hope is in the faithfulness of God. Think about your relationship and your, in your families, the relationships in your families. It might be a great family, but you know, you have arguments, you have fights. Don't see eye to eye on things. Treat each other poorly or you don't treat each other as you should. Or maybe a friend at school. Somebody that's not in your crowd and you look over at them and you just you know, judge them. Somebody at your workplace. We're just so prone to sin, prone to dysfunction. But the forgiveness of God is assured to us in Christ Jesus. We have been declared righteous, friends. If we believe, we have been declared righteous. We have been set apart. We have been adopted into his family, and he will complete the work that he began in us, not, not as non-dysfunctional people, but he will complete the work in us as dysfunctional people to the praise of His glory and grace. For those who were once His enemies, He changes us. He brings us into the family, adopts us. We were once hostile mind toward Him, but now He's given us the right to become children of God. This is the truth that we believe on, the good news of Jesus Christ. And on account of the faithfulness and love of the Father in our salvation, through Jesus Christ, the Son and the power of the Holy Spirit, be encouraged, my brothers and sisters, that from the first day to the last, God, Alpha and Omega, because of all of his promises, because of who he is as the faithful God, whether it's Abraham and Isaac and Jacob as we're seeing, or the, the Israelites as we see, all culminating in the point when Jesus comes and shows the faithfulness of God and the love of God, calls us into his family, 
we can find rest amid our own dysfunction in the absolute assurance of God's faithfulness to accomplish his glorious purposes in us and through us. Find rest, friends, in Christ and in Christ alone.